Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. You know, Sugi and I, we, not Sugi and I, Sugi, you and I have talked a lot about immigration policy in the U.S. on this podcast, and for good reason. You mean like the time our fake President Trump was putting kids in cages? That would be one. And we also talked to Beth Wen about um, the refugee experience of holiday narratives spurred on by the same fake president's move to deport Vietnamese war refugees in 2018. I'm sensing a theme here. Yes, yes. Um, and what about the episode this past April when we talked to Gis Jen and Peter Ho Davies about the outbreak of violence toward Asian Americans in the wake of COVID and the history of anti-Asian violence in the U.S., although that was post-Trump? Should I feel good or bad about that being post-Trump? I, I guess, actually, I'll just answer that question myself. It does not make me feel better, especially speaking as a child of immigrants in this country. But today, for better or worse, we're going to focus on immigration outside of the U.S., and specifically the crisis around migrants passing from Belarus into Poland and thus into the EU, possibly with the encouragement of Belarus' Russian-backed strongman leader, Alexander Lukashenko. I love that phrase, Russian-backed strongman leader. I feel like more than, eventually we'll just have a president of the United States that we can describe as a Russian-backed strongman I leader. I think we've had one. Okay, yeah. and we also already did an episode on, on how Poland was being hostile to immigrants. We did. I know it seems confusing for an authoritarian-minded leader to send immigrants into the country of another authoritarian-minded leader in order to piss off the supposedly liberal EU, but it gets a lot easier to understand if you remember that European countries have always treated immigrants terribly, regardless of their politics. And to help us decode the current state of immigration in Europe and remember its past, we're thrilled to be talking with acclaimed novelist Nadifa Mohammed, author of The Fortune Men. Nadifa was born in 1981 in Hargisa, Somaliland. At the age of four, she moved with her family to London. She's the author of Black Mamba Boy and the Orchard of Lost Souls. She's received both the Betty Trask Award and the Somerset Mom Award. And in 2013, she was named one of Granta's best of young British novelists. Her work appears regularly in The Guardian and the BBC, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature she lives in London. And her new novel, The Fortune Men, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. We're thrilled to have her here to talk with us about it. Nadifa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, your novel, The Fortune Men, follows the case of Mahmoud, is it Matin or Matin? How would you say that? Matan. Matan. I've been saying it in my head, but here's the first time I get to say it out loud. Yeah. Um, a Somali immigrant <laughs> accused of murdering a Jewish shopkeeper in Cardiff, Wales, uh, during the 1950s. This was a real case, and Mahmoud was a real person who you've mentioned your own father knew. Um, your, father, your novel even has a clipping of the press coverage of this trial at the end, so... How well known was this case when you began writing about the book? Was it famous or infamous in Wales or was it forgotten history? It was pretty well known. Um, it was in a very 
big British tabloid. That's how I found out about it. So it was in the news a lot. It was quite a shocking case. I think it never really left the news from 1952 to when I first read about it in 2004. So yeah, it was notorious. Um, it was a well-known example of why we shouldn't have a death penalty. He was one of the many people who were killed um, despite being innocent. So, But I think what was true was that it was known on a surface level. The real Mahmoud had kind of disappeared and all of the layers of oppression and the, the way that he'd been treated by the state was the focus and the real man had kind of been pushed into the background. So um, Cardiff is a port city and in the 50s, in, in your book, it's incredibly diverse. The cast of characters includes... Yeah. Jewish immigrants and West Indian immigrants, Somalis, Indians, Native Americans and Nigerians and many other nationalities. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you did your research and imagined that particular time and place. So even in the 50s, Tiger Bay was heavily romanticized by the wider society. So there was lots of newsreels and photo stories, um, writing about Tiger Bay, often with a real... Uh, a very orientalist um, lens on these people and a, a sense of fear that it was this dangerous stockside neighborhood where you know bad things happened such as interracial marriages so it was it was there was a lot of information um, but you had to then try and strip, strip away the, the tint that those people had had used about this neighborhood. And I also um, spoke to a lot of people who are in Cardiff right now, who are maybe second, third, fourth generation um, locals who come back, who come from a very diverse background themselves. And it was those one-to-one -one interviews really, and sometimes not just one-to-one, -one, but talking to a group of people that was really helpful in this process. Because then you got the real story and all of the small details of people, you know, refer, uh, using fortune tellers. And, you know, it was, a very, it was a, an area dominated by women because the men were often at sea. So that also gave it a particular atmosphere and particular habits. Um, the men, many men died during the Second World War um, on the Merchant Navy. So there was a real sense that the, the real uh, consistency in, in that society came from its women. But so it was thought of as being a unique place in uh, the UK for its diversity, or was it thought of as normal? Or uh, I mean, that is it was it because it's was, it was definitely okay. not normal. So, but it had similarities, of course, to other dock docks. And it was because of the seafaring trade that that was the okay. Yes, Liverpool, East London, these were similar, um, but Tiger Bay had a particular romanticism around it. So. Mahmoud and the other uh, immigrants are treated unfairly by the local police and white British officials. They're discriminated against, and that's part of what your book is about. But under the surface, there's also a tremendous amount of cultural mixing going on in this Tiger Bay neighborhood, uh, what we in America used to celebrate as the melting pot of culture. Some of it is quite joyful. I'm thinking, for instance, of the Eid uh, al-Adha procession that you describe on page 65. I wondered if you could read that section to us and talk about why and how you wrote it. Of course, I'd be happy to. So this is a scene within chapter four, Afar, and it focuses on Diana, the murder victim's sister, who is left in the wreckage of what her sister left behind and in the wreckage of her own grief. So Diana was a really amazing woman in real life. She volunteered for the 
RAF, the Royal Air Force, um, before the Second World War, Second World War broke out. Um, she was disgusted by what Hitler was doing in Germany, especially after Kristallnacht. So her and her husband volunteered. And then, of course, just uh, is it a year or two years later, the war broke out and um, he went to North Africa and she was sent um, to join the balloon, balloon, um, barrage balloon unit to protect London. Diana watches from the bus stop outside the shop as the main Eid al-Adha procession troops down from the canal all the way round Loudoun Square and ends at the Zawiya on Peel Street. While Sheikh Hassan's competing but smaller group dawdle up from the docks. Children dressed in Yemeni tobes and headdresses with tin discs and red embroidery on their bodices lead the adults in song and step. Even Christian Buddhist and Jewish children have joined their friends, dressed in nativity costumes of Mary Blue and Shepherd Czech, miming the verses of the Arabic nasheeds and raising their voices at the choruses, Ya Allah, Ya Allah, Ya Allah Karim. Adar Buka keeps the beat and is added to by the pounding footsteps of hundreds of celebrants. Up front is Ali Salaman, proprietor of the Cairo Cafe holding one side of a navy banner stitched with holy scripture by Cardiff's convert wives. His own wife, Olive, stands outside their cafe, handing out meat sambusas and paper cups of Vimto cordial. Aproned matrons, flat-capped gamblers, ruined rummies, yapping dogs, fresh-faced bar girls, and leather-jacketed teenage delinquents watch from the pavement and wave out of windows. A few tatty Union Jacks left over from VE Day celebrations flap about. The giddy children delight in what they call Muslim Christmas and take cellophane bags of boiled sweets and gobstoppers greedily without knowing or caring what the day commemorates. The story she knows well enough from the Torah. Sacrifice of a child as small and innocent as them. Isaac's throat reddened by the blade but miraculously not cut. His silence in Abraham's arms, as weeping but steadfast, the prophet obeyed God's command. The ram then sent down at the last moment to replace Isaac and deliver God's mercy. Both the trial and deliverance celebrated. Thank you very much. I mean, one of the things that I love about that passage is that the kids from all different religions, and of course, the other thing about the end of that of the passage is that many of these religions borrow from each other and are similar. A lot. Um, yes. All of these, all of these kids are celebrating in participating in this and not thinking that it's bad or foreign or strange. They want to participate and, and enjoy, and it, it reminds you that mm. this kind of cultural mixing you have to be taught not to like. Naturally, I think people enjoy and are curious about these kinds of things, and that's what I liked about that passage. Yeah, of course. And again, that was um, that scene is inspired by the memories of people who grew up, who grew up knowing those uh, uh, processions and enjoying them despite being Christian. They, that, that phrase Muslim Christmas was something that was actually used. That's so interesting. Um, and of course, also, yeah, the reference to innocence there just foreshadows so much to come. Um, mm. So what does the way that immigration works in Cardiff in the 50s tell us about the way that Britain or Europe generally handles immigration today? Are, are things different or less permissive, more permissive? <laughs> it's complicated. So Mahmoud actually arrived as a British subject with an entitlement to be in Britain. 
it, uh, Somaliland was still a British protectorate and whether he liked it or not, he was, he was a citizen of this country, of this empire. So he arrived without needing to think about his um, immigration status. That's not the case now. But as soon as he arrived, by this stage in the 1940s, he arrived in 1947, the same year as my father, the British had made it very difficult for coloured sailors, as they were described as, um, from the empire to have an easy life. So they had to register with the police. They were deported despite it being formally against the rules. So the British looked for any reason to get rid of them. And they did this particularly in, in Liverpool when a group of Chinese sailors advocated for equal pay and conditions to white sailors. And without any warning, about 2,000 of them were deported away from their families, I think in 1948. So that was always the risk. You know, on paper you had a right to be here, but in reality you were here on sufferance. Um, and the foreign sailors were also um, this kind of bargaining chip or tool um, or even like maybe kind of more of a ragdoll thrown between the ship owners and uh, the men who worked in, on the shipping fleets and often one of the way that one of the ways that the um, workers um, would feel that they were being treated well by the shipping owners was by treating the coloured sailors badly so it was a complicated That's always situation nice. where, where the, where the, <laughs> <laughs> right um, and it was a shame because uh, the, the 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 foreign sailors were very loyal to the shipping union. They 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 joined at much greater levels than white British sailors, but they were treated very disloyally by those unions. So it's this very complicated picture, which I think is still the case, where you're half in and half out. You're constantly half in, half out. So just this week, the Tory government changed the rules so people like me, who were born somewhere else, can have our citizenship removed. And they don't even have to tell us, you know, if they find it tricky to notify you, they don't even have to notify what? you about that. This happened yes. this week? Yeah. It happened oh this God. week. And, you know, we were distracted by all of the nonsense about Christmas parties at Downing Street. But this is a shocking law, which affects something like six million people. What has the discussion so, been in the British press? Or has there been discussion about it? I have not read about very this. Very little. Very little. Very little. So it, everything that Pretty Patel <laughs> said she would do... And that was horrifying. She is actually doing. And it's all happening very quietly because our, our attention is on COVID or on the economy or on some sort of scandal. So this is how it happens. You know, this is how it happens. This is how it's happened all through history, where terrible things happen when people are looking somewhere else. Um, we've got Now we're getting the, the channel deaths where people have been trying to cross for quite a while um, to get into England from France. And now more and more people are dying on that route. There was a really terrible incident where 24 people, uh, 20 something people died um, just off the coast of the south of England recently. And what was disgusting was how many people were celebrating that and how many people have been trying to stop um, the National Lifeguard Organization in this country from saving migrants, refugees, whatever you want to call them, these people coming across the English Channel looking for sanctuary. Um, they've actually changed one of the kind of very you'd think that the rnli which is our lifeguard organization could not have any enemies but it turns out they do have enemies and they have enemies because they say that everyone's life is equal and they will always go out to whoever whoever the boat belongs to or whoever's in the site inside whoever's in trouble is it is that like the coast guard we have a coast guard here that's their job is to sort of so patrol the some, shores we, so this is a charity. Oh, okay. So it's not a military organization. All right. The Coast Guard is run it's by not, the government. Okay. Which is very odd. So Britain doesn't really have a Coast Guard. 
Um, seems, so these seems guys strange. Are, you have a lot of coast. Uh, there's not very. There's a lot of coast lot of compared coast, to your land. And we have a lot of paranoia about being an island nation <laughs> and needing to protect our borders. But we don't actually have. An, we have the border police, and they they will go out to stop you entering the country. But there's, these are the only guys that will come and save you, whether you're a fisherman, whether you're you know on a yacht or on a dinghy. They're they're there for everyone, and they're funded by by us, by ordinary people. Wow. Just to set the, to make sure that we're just as, you know, look, Americans don't know jack about anybody's politics outside of America. And sometimes they don't <laughs> even really know about American politics, which is why we have this show to tell them about it. Yeah. Um, the current government in the UK, are they like more anti-immigrant than others? I mean, in other words, the Trump Very, administration extremely. was extremely and used it as a, as a way to get elected to be anti-immigrant was one yes. of their planks. Of, okay. Yeah. So this government came in under a promise to get Brexit done. And Brexit was, of course, um, Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. And for many people, the um, reason to do that was to control immigration. Um, Nigel Farage is a very right-wing politician here who's campaigned for, the, for Britain's withdrawal from the EU for decades. Um, he had this ridiculous propaganda poster where all of these brown people were flooding in into Britain. And that, that mentality that Britain is being over overwhelmed, swamped, you know, even Margaret Thatcher used that language of being swamped. We're only a small island and we're being swamped and we're a soft touch and these people are coming here to sponge, sponge off of us. That's been a decades-long narrative and that's got worse and worse and worse. And so now I think whatever veneer of civility or kindness that the other previous governments had tried to... Um, hide behind or at least protect has gone so now migrants refugees are being put in barracks that are not fit for human habitation they're being deported they're, they've been deported now for a long time but that the speed and, and the brutal the ruthlessness of those deportations is increasing the language and also the policies aimed towards people coming into the country is getting nastier and nastier some of what you're talking about reminds me a little bit of kevin rudd in australia several years ago who was you know, rose to power, kind of these terrible posters that would sort of, like, that were in other countries telling you, like, don't take a boat to Australia, and I would travel and see family, and I would see them in multiple places, multiple languages, and um, the top of the show, we mentioned the current immigration crisis that began in November along the border between Poland and Belarus, and it's still ongoing. It's a pretty confusing situation, but based on the news we've been reading, it seems like the autocratic leader of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, has been inviting immigrants from countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria to fly one way to Belarus. And then, and this is the part where it gets murky to me, somehow promising them that they will be able to enter the EU through the border between Belarus and Poland, and also the border between Belarus and Lithuania. Do I have that right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's correct. Um, So that's like... It's just it's it's like a it's a it's an astonishing situation and really like we did it. Well, I think what Lukashenko is doing and what Putin is is you know doing behind him as well is to show up the Euro, the EU's hypocrisy that it's more liberal that it supports and protects human rights um, that it will abide by its laws. So Poland and Hungary and a group of other EU states have been incredibly hostile to to migrants. Um, they are treated with brutality by the police in those countries. So what I think Lukashenko is doing is is showing the hypocrisy of the EU 
through, and in a very brutal way, through the bodies of these migrants, some of whom have died of exposure in the no-man's land between these two countries. And he's not letting them go back into Belarus, and they're not able to enter Poland. But he's creating negative publicity for Poland and the, and the EU. So we did a 2018 episode on Poland uh, and their autocratic law and justice party, which is led by Yaroslav Kaczynski, I think, um, even though he's Mm -hmm. not an elected leader. The current elected president, um, Duda, is a member of that party. And law and justice is also very authoritarian and anti-immigration. As you just said, they would seem more likely to be friends with somebody like Lukashenko in Belarus rather than enemies. So why is he? I guess it's because he because they're in the EU and he's not and he wants to attack them. I mean, why, why, why aren't they working together to be? jerks to immigrants and be horrible people well they they are okay. in effect they they really are and you know people are pushed and then pushed back and pushed forward and pushed back so it's a really terrible situation for the people involved including babies disabled people elderly people um it's really crass on both sides and i think lukashenko feels he has nothing to lose um poland maybe has more to lose in its standing but as you say, this is an authoritarian right-wing government that's focused on um, women, on family life, on a very traditional Christian idea of, of Poland and, and Europe as a whole. So I, I'd be frightened for immigrants entering Poland because they are not they are not entering their image of Germany or France or Britain. These are not multicultural, or they probably are multicultural states in a historic sense, but they are not multiracial states. And they can be very dangerous for people arriving. So when it was created, the European Union dissolved the borders between member countries, which made immigration a lot easier. And once you get into a country like, say, Poland, you can easily you could easily go to France or Italy or any other European country without having to show your papers or go through border control. And this seems to be at the heart of the conflict. And Lukashenko sees this as a weakness. And unfortunately, it seems like the EU is increasingly starting to see it that way, too. And so does Britain, because this is the reason, one of the main reasons that the UK decided to do Brexit is, as you alluded to earlier, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. So um, as each country joins the EU, it means that there's free travel between that state and the rest of the EU. And I think that, I don't know if that was always the case for Britain. I didn't have to show my passport entering the EU, but um, I'd be surprised if EU travellers entering the UK didn't have to show their passport because even even then the British were, were iffy. So you could arrive from Poland and Romania and work here, you know, and and claim uh, benefits after a certain time and use the NHS. But in in mainland Europe, in continental Europe, you could just easily cross borders without ever showing your passport. But that was even then it was qualified. I think if you're black or Asian or obviously not white, you are more likely for the police just to just to get into a conversation with you and ask to see your papers, whether that's legitimate or not. Um, And now Britain is outside of the EU, so I will need a visa if I want to work in France or Germany or any of these places. I will have to show my passport each time I cross a border. But is it a weakness? Um, Well, those rules have also changed because of COVID. And I remember during the earlier refugee crisis, as, as it's called here, um, uh, I think so, t- uh, Italy and Austria did introduce a boundary, a hard boundary, to stop the flow of migrants crossing who were entering from Syria at the time. So this is something which is deemed a threat to the EU. 
um, and refugees as a whole are, are deemed as a threat to the EU and to its ideals. And the insane. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just was going to say I have um, I have a ton of family in in Britain, and I feel like over the years, sort of hearing rhetoric about you mentioned people drawing on benefits, and I feel like I've sort of heard this rhetoric of oh, people from other countries are going to come into England and draw on our our fantastic benefits. They're going to get council support, or they're going to get housing, and the whole thing. And, the whole know, oh, uh, what a what a lot of um, there's a sort of conversation using the this, rhetoric of parasitism essentially which is of course and that was the case even in the 1950s um even though people were working and working for less wages they was then also seen as somehow draw at the time it was um what was it called national benefit or whatever it was and it's so miserly, miserly. we're talking about very small amounts so refugees are only entitled to something like 36 pounds in vouchers or I think they're giving it through a card nowadays and they're only able to buy it at, use it in certain shops so 35 pounds a week will get you a couple of days worth of food really and then you're also given some housing it could be completely uninhabitable housing but um, because it's often hotels that have been reconverted into migrant centres with four people to a bedroom, it's all portrayed in the right-wing media as, oh, look what they're getting. And we've got homeless soldiers on our streets, and this is what these people with their smartphones, who are arriving on their smartphones with their smartphones and having paid £6,000 to, to people smugglers, that's what they're getting, and this is what we're not giving to our own people, that language of our own people. But then um, the Windrush Windrush, um, scandal, which happened a few years ago, was attacking people who had lived here for decades, who should have been considered our people. But um, the Home Office made it incredibly difficult for them to prove their legitimacy to be in this country, and they were deported, and often um, deported for years, away from their families, away from their homes, away from their jobs, away from um, a health service that they could easily access in potentially a country they hadn't been to since they were five years old. So no one is safe. You can speak English, you can be Christian, you can have years, decades worth of contact with people in this country, but it doesn't mean you're safe. That's the insane part of this discussion is that every single study that's done, at least in the United States, and I haven't really looked at I would assume it's the same in Europe, is that immigration is extremely economically valuable to the country that allows immigration. And, and if you don't, then you have declining birth rates and you get in a situation like a country like Japan where you have a stagnant economy because the population doesn't grow and because Japan doesn't have a lot of immigration. And so, yes. you know, economically, it's it. incredibly... It die. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, Japan doesn't want to allow the immigration. It seems that they prefer just to, yeah. just to kind of slowly die. So, I mean, it, a, is, it, is so, it, is, it is an economic necessity. It's also good for... The interests of business because they need cheap workers, so it's not always good for for you know low wage workers. Um, those those workers are easier to exploit, just to put it directly, right? And yet, and it are are treated as not something other than an asset to the country that's having them. I mean, the United States needs more immigration, not less. That that's right, what we need right now economically. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand mm-hmm. why the Democrats in our country and why the EU can't just blatantly make the case. <laughs> Instead of like being like, well, we don't, you know, they're just kind of wishy-washy about it. Instead of saying like, this is an economic plus for us. We need more immigration. We should have immigration. This is how, the, this is why the country works. Well, the point was made very bluntly in this country when we had our petrol. <laughs> we had a petrol shortage maybe a month or two months ago, where because of the lack of um, 
HGV drivers and people who would drive the petrol into this country uh, and also food shortages. We're having all sorts of shortages because we've made it so hostile to, to immigrants, to, to migrant workers who often don't even live in this country. They're just crossing over from Europe to drop off deliveries. But um, we've made life too difficult for them, so they don't want to come to this country. Um, uh, food is rotting in the ground or is going unharvested because we don't have the workers coming in from Eastern Europe who would do that work, who are willing and able to do that work. So we're, we're learning the hard way how important immigration is to the health of this country. So you've spoken a little bit about um, detention, incarceration, and in reading your book, I couldn't help but be reminded not only the kind of U.S. rhetoric and tradition of welcoming immigrants, you know, huddled masses yearning to breathe free, et cetera, but also of how xenophobic moments are always marked by an increase in detention and incarceration, also a great American tradition, how that is used Mm. to deter immigration. I mentioned Kevin Rudd before, and to control people trying to migrate, detaining people at borders, and to foment fear in the minds of citizens, um, the idea that among immigrants an unknown criminal might lurk. And of course, this is so present in your in your novel. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the links between incarceration and otherness and, and what it was like to write about that. Yes. Yeah, it's very true. So hmm, where do I even begin with that? The idea is to punish. So Mahmoud couldn't be actually quite a few. Some people arrived in Britain in the 1940s and 50s as stowaways from Nigeria, just say, um, and then they would spend a, a month in prison and then they'd be allowed to stay in this country and start their lives. Mahmoud was never detained on arrival. He was detained on his way to Britain in northern Rhodesia because he didn't have the papers um, that he needed. And Somalis travelled a lot without papers because they didn't need them. They're nomads. Why would you need that? Um, and it was only as they entered um, particular zones, often colonised zones or the imperial metropolises of, of France and England, uh, Spain, that they would need paperwork suddenly. But the idea of corralling them in certain zones, so Tiger Bay was one of those places, it was only one mile square, and uh, foreign sailors had to live there. That was by law. And they had to live in these boarding houses owned by the shipping companies, which were racially segregated, ethnically segregated. So in every way, they were seen as being these units that had to be kept um, and controlled. And the minute they stepped out of line, prison was the next step for them. And if they were seen as even more dangerous, then, of course, the execution cell was the next place for them. And Mahmoud became one of those seen as so dangerous, so unruly, that he had to be detained, uh, had to be executed himself. And the idea that even now Britain is... There were so many people in detention in this country, and I, from a long, from from a very long period uh, ago, I've been interested in the lives of the detained. And at university, I used to visit someone in Campsfield, which was a detention centre near my university, and he was a young Ghanaian student who had said something about the government and had fled to this country, and they didn't even tell him that the camp Campsfield centre was closing down. I had to be the one to tell him that, and now these centres are even greater in number and are completely, uh, they're money-making schemes. They are, they are controlled by G4S or Serco and these companies that invest a lot of money in, in lobbying the government and are owned often by people close to the government. So it doesn't really matter what the, these people have done, it's now a money-making factory. Um, and attention of the detention of black and brown bodies, whether in immigration detention or in prison, is is a real problem in this country as well as in France and in America and many other countries. So I was really intrigued by the comment that Sadia Hartman made in her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, where you have the jail, 
But the jail is only one type of detention because you also have the ghetto and there's a constant um, exchange of people between the prison and the ghetto. The ghetto is almost like a holding pen before you get to prison. And I think that's still very true. So when people are in a, a, a low income, black or Asian neighborhood in this country, the likelihood of them ending up in jail is so high in comparison to the rest of this country. And it starts from a young age, it starts from being expelled from school and then being in a youth detention and then in a real prison. And it, your whole life can be wasted going through that cycle. You were born in Somaliland, as we said at the beginning of the, of the introduction, in 1981, which is good news for you and bad for me because that means you're a lot younger than I am. Um, uh, your father? I've got one correction. What's that? It was. I've got one correction. It was actually Somalia. It was the Republic of Somalia that I was born okay. in. And then because of the civil war, um, Somaliland broke away in 1991. We're getting that from Wikipedia, so you'll have to go change that. I think we actually got it. I think we actually got it from the Random House oh. site. Um, I, I, it's, it's a big debate. You know, I, my Wikipedia is constantly changed by other Somalis okay. <laughs> who either accept the existence of Somaliland or don't. So it's a movable. I always thing. tell my students never to rely on Wikipedia. And there you go. It's my, my, I you did shouldn't. the same damn thing. You were born in Somalia <laughs> in 1981, and your father was a mer sailor in the Merchant Mar Navy, the same job I would note that Mahmoud has. Uh, your family moved to London in 1986, then ended up staying after the, at the Civil War that you just mentioned broke out in Somalia. So how much of Mahmoud's experience of what it feels like to be learning the culture of a white majority country like Britain is translated through your own experience of growing much up of there? I was thinking particularly... Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> was go ahead. particularly of what... I just was thinking of this one section where you talk on 23, where you talk about him, uh, learn, what he's, he thinks about the movies that he watches and how he, much he's mm. learned about British culture from movies. I wonder if you could talk, answer yeah. my question, and then maybe if you could read that passage, that would be great. Sure. So, of course, yeah, I think a lot of Mahmoud's experiences are similar to mine, and sometimes I've even placed my own experiences into his life. So that suspicion that he starts to feel of people looking at him as if he's problematic, dangerous, a, a, you know, a thief or someone that they're just terrified of for no reason. I've experienced that. You know, I'm a, I'm a very non-threatening woman, but I still get that. Um, so I, I could understand why Mahmoud could just steal a handbag. <laughs> it's something I've never done. But when you're constantly being treated as someone who's a threat, I can see how you can lean into it and say, Do you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be the devil that you've made me out to be. And it's a decision I've not made because I guess I've got enough comfort in my life or it may be too much to lose. But when you have little to lose, then it's easy to to absorb the negative stereotypes that are constantly being placed on your head. And Mahmoud was a lover of film. It's something that he said with um, to his prison doctor in their interviews. And I think, of course, you learn a lot. You learn the language. Um, I remember the ver one of the very first things I watched in Britain was the Mahabharata that was screened on Channel 4 for some reason. And it was familiar to me. It was nice to see brown-skinned people and a different way of life, a different story. So for a while, I think I, I tried to not enter this country, but then by osmosis, it happens. You watch children's TV, um, you're at school. You're... I do remember that very early stage, probably between four and five and six years of age, where I still felt very foreign and I didn't want to integrate. Um, and I felt I could resist it as you know until the point where, until we returned to Somalia and then it became clearer and clearer 
that we were not going to return and without even realizing it i became british whatever that means so this is mahmoud um, in cardiff his daily life before his arrest he was a big cinemaphile um, and would go regularly, I think, spend a lot of his money at the bug house, as they called it, because it was full of fleas. Passing the cinema, he looks up to see what pictures they have on Double Dynamite, still, and Quo Vadis and the African Queen as the new releases. He will watch Quo Vadis, but turns his nose up at the African Queen. He spends too much of his money on the pictures, it's one of his chief vices, but also his school. Where else could he learn so much about this place he's decided to call home? Its dreams, its history, and its myths. In that dark, flea-ridden hall, he's learnt how to romance girls, how to talk real English, and examined how his neighbours see themselves and how they see him. Films have made him realise it's hopeless to expect the Adams Down biddies to change their ways. They'll only ever see him, like one of those grimy coolies in loincloths, or jungle savages shrieking before their quick, unmourned deaths. Or at best, a tight-lipped houseboy, proudly taking punishment in place of his white master. It makes him marvel that Laura was able to ignore all that shit and see him as a man like any other. Was it because her family, with its hunger, cussing and bitter wisdom, was not like the rich, chattering ones shown in the pictures. She is part of the servant class. He knows that now. He might just as easily stamp a black man into the dirt as offer him a hand up like a brother. Whatever it was, the navy money, the navy money in his pocket had certainly helped. Mahmoud stumbles over a loose cobblestone and corrects his balance subconsciously, looking left and right. He is paranoid that his steps look strange, flat-footed. His shoes are a size too big to allow room for the painful corns on his feet. You cannot look like prey here. You cannot show weakness, or your days are numbered, like those of the Somali trunk the police beat to death last year. Mahmoud had learnt to do the black man's walk early on in Cardiff, to walk with his shoulders high, his elbows pointed out, his feet sliding slowly over the ground, his chin buried deep in his collar and his hat low over his face, to give nothing away apart from his masculinity, a human silhouette in motion. Nadifa, thank you so much. I, I love that passage. Um... Thank you. Thank you. And listeners, you should definitely go pick up a copy of Nadifa Muhammad's The Fortune Men, a fantastic novel. Uh, really thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction podcast on Literary Hub. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. In each of these spots, you'll find links to our LitHub Radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on LitHub's virtual book channel and on our YouTube channel. Our new website with our full video and audio archive and episodes grouped by theme for educators is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, happy holidays from fiction nonfiction.